The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to take your Bible, if you would, and open them to the Gospel of Luke chapter 24. And I'd like to take uh, just a brief look at this passage this evening in preparation for our observance of the Lord's table. And this is one of the beloved accounts of the resurrection of Christ. Now, there are two reasons for choosing this text for this evening's message. And the first would be that we are just so close to uh, Easter just this past week. And the reality of the resurrection is something that really must be on all our minds all of the time. And we observe the fact that the resurrection has such great importance to to us as Christians that without the resurrection of Christ, there simply would be no hope for us. And we looked at that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in the beginning of last Sunday morning's message. And then the second reason for choosing this text is because, of course, of the Lord's Supper And also in writing to the Corinthians, Paul said or explained to them that we observe the supper because Christ is coming again. And of course, he could not come unless he had risen from the grave. And so the the Lord's Supper is a celebration of Christ's death for sin and of his resurrection from the grave and also his return to the earth. Now, what we have here this evening is just, it's really a rather long reading, but there's nothing wrong with reading a lot of scripture. In fact, I'd like you to notice that as we go through this, that Jesus uh, had some really important points to make about himself through the scriptures. And it's unusual for us to take this amount of text at one time. It's a long block of reading, so I assure you right now, I can't cover everything that's here. So I'm just going to pick out a couple of important things that I'd like you to see as we prepare for the supper this evening. So if you'll look at Luke chapter 24, beginning at verse number 13... And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem, about threescore furlongs. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that ye have one to another, as ye walk and are sad? And one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering, said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known these things which are come to pass in these days? And he said unto them, What things? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priest and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulcher. And when they found not his body, they came, saying that they had also seen a vision of angels which said that he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher and found it even so as the women had said, but they saw him not. Then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And they drew nigh unto the village whither they went and made as though they would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and brake and gave to them. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. And they said one to another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way, and while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and them that were with them, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and hath appeared to Simon. And they told what things were done in the way and how he was known of them in the breaking of bread. Now back in verse number 13, the scripture says, And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about threescore furlongs. What we have here is the story of the resurrection from the vantage point of two disciples that had an encounter with the resurrected Lord. Obviously, we're not talking here about two of the apostles of Jesus. One of these is named Cleopas. The other is an unnamed disciple. Uh, but we know that these couldn't have been of the 11 that were in Jerusalem, the 12 of the 11 that had been chosen by Christ. Some have said that this unnamed disciple was possibly Luke, but we don't have anything in this scripture or any other to prove that that's so. But what we have here is two disciples that are very typical of all the people that have begun to follow Christ. And we'll learn a little bit later on when we get into the study of the church a few weeks from today that there were a number of people that believed in Christ. There were about 120, in fact, that were gathered together on the day of, the, the day of Pentecost. So there were other believers in Christ, but these two are typical of all the rest of the people that had, that had trusted him and thought that he would be the Savior. And we notice that they said here in their own words that there was this general malaise and this helplessness that was in the disciples' minds after the crucifixion. And in their own words, they said, we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And that response showed that they had no understanding of the many times that Jesus taught them that he would be killed and then he would arise from the dead. Now, I want you to notice two key verses in this passage. And you might want to put a circle around these so each time that you come back to this that you will remember what are the key two verses that we find in this passage of Scripture. So you might circle verse number 16, which says, But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. And then also in verse number 31, if you would circle this, And their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. Now those are the two verses that I want to center on for this evening's message. And first, I'd like you to notice the disciples' ignorance of Christ. As these two were walking along on the road to uh, Emmaus, which was a seven-mile journey from Jerusalem, they were talking over all of the events that had happened in the past week. And particularly, they were discussing what had just happened, and that was the discovery that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb of Jesus. And they were also evaluating the report that the women had given, that they said that there were angels that appeared to them, and they said that Jesus had risen from the grave. 
And as they were walking along and they were talking about this, there was a stranger that came and entered into this conversation. He overheard what they were saying, but he really wasn't a stranger at all. He was the very one that they were talking about. And in verse number 16, it says, Their eyes were holden that they should not know him. Now, holden is a word that simply means that they didn't recognize who he was. They didn't recognize him. And the question that we might ask about this is, why didn't they recognize him? And I would suggest two reasons for you, for their ignorance of him. Though they had seen Jesus many times, I think that we can say that they didn't recognize him, first of all, because of their failed expectations. They had failed expectations of what Christ would do. Now, you can read a lot of commentary on this expression that their eyes were holden, and you'll find that there are arguments about what caused this, that there are some who say that this was supernatural, that God purposely hid the identity of Christ from them. There are others that say that they didn't look at him directly in the face, and they didn't get a very clear look at who he was, and so they didn't recognize him. And then there are others who say that they didn't recognize him because of their unbelief. I think that it's a combination of all of those reasons, but I want to particularly focus on the third of those, and that is they did not recognize him because of their unbelief. Now, how many times in Matthew's gospel, as we've studied that on Sunday mornings, have we seen that Jesus told the disciples that he would be crucified and then he would arise from the dead? Now, particularly, we note in the 16th chapter of Matthew, a place that we studied not long ago, that it says there, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Now, Jesus constantly taught this. From this time forth, it says, he began to show unto his disciples. And that tells me that this was a common part of Jesus' teachings to them, that probably more than the times that we've read here in the scriptures, that he talked to them about the fact that he would have to die and then he would arise from the grave. Now, the resurrection should have been great hope for them. He said that he was coming in the glory of his father and that he would bring his angels with him. And all the disciples had been taught these same principles, but here they are, two disciples that are found on the day that Jesus arose from the dead in confusion and hopelessness and in despair and doubting the reports of the resurrection. Now, what were their real doubts? Well, they doubted that Jesus would fulfill his promises. I don't think that if they did recognize him, that they would have looked him in the face and they would have said to him, we don't believe anything that you say. But their actions here showed that they were living in this skepticism. And I think they're like like many Christians are today, that there are many Christians that live with failed expectations. We live with the failed expectation that Jesus will really return to this earth. And people live as if that will never happen. Now, I don't think that there's anybody in our congregation today, and most Christians would not stand in the presence of Jesus and call him a liar. And yet, there are people, there are Christians, and even people in this church that live without holiness in their lives, acting as if Jesus would not come this very day. 
There's a failed expectation that he would actually come because if we really believe that, that would make a change in the way that we live our lives. The Apostle John said, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Now, John was one that learned his lesson about this. He was one of those doubting disciples. All of them were. But he learned not to doubt. And his testimony became, as he wrote this epistle to these these people in the church, he said, don't doubt the promises of God. He's coming back, and so you must live like he's coming back. And I think that there are also many Christians that are living in despair because of daily provisions. They want more than they have. And they act as if they don't realize that they are alive and the fact that they are alive, that God is taking care of their needs. And these disciples were like that because their attitude was this. After Jesus had said, take no thought for what you eat or you drink or what you shall wear, for your heavenly Father knows that you have need of these things. Failed expectations are a common problem for Christians. And so perhaps from our perspective, seeing that they did not believe in Jesus, that he'd risen from the dead, maybe we really shouldn't be too hard on these disciples. We live with the same kinds of failed expectations. And then another reason for their ignorance was because of their worldly occupations. I'm not speaking here about their jobs, but I'm thinking about their thoughts. They were in despair. They were in hopelessness. Their thoughts were consumed with what might have been. They should have been joyous. They should have been rejoicing because an empty tomb was found. The stone had been rolled away and Jesus was not there. And the fact that that tomb was empty should have been something that really just lit them up. But instead of doing so, they were self-consumed and they had a woe-is-me attitude. And they were thinking, oh, what could have been? We hoped that he had been the one that should have redeemed Israel. And what was it that they really hoped for? Probably not anything different than what the other disciples were thinking. They were looking for a king right then. They wanted a king in Israel that would make their lives better. And so they sorrowed because of their troubles. They thought that things were going to get better immediately. And they didn't have that. Jesus died. So what are they going to do? And so they were occupying their minds with the sorrow that they had rather than rejoicing that the tomb had been found empty. Now, interesting that Paul encouraged the Thessalonians to sanctification and to holiness. And they thought, well, it's probably not worth it, it's too hard, it's maybe not worth it at all. And then he said to them, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. Christians should never be found sorrowing as if there is no hope. Now trouble is not unusual for Christians, and yet there are those in Christianity that teach that being a Christian is supposed to make your life better. They won't acknowledge that they're suffering for Christians, and so they teach Christians to occupy their minds with getting ahead and with getting more money, getting better houses, getting better cars, or a better lifestyle. But Christianity is not about making your life better, at least not in that respect. Christianity is about living to the glory of God. 
And when you live to the glory of God, that can cause greater contentment than all the money in the world, all the contentment that the world, all the money that you could have could ever buy. And then the minds of Christians are occupied with so many other activities, just things, everything that comes down to the pike seems to, seems to, to gather our attention and draw us away from Christ. I don't know how many people I've talked to over the years that have told me, I, I don't have time for church work. I don't have time for Bible reading. I don't have time to go to church. And you ask, well, why don't you have time? We all have the same amount of time, don't we? It's not an issue of time. It's an issue of priorities. And I don't have any other way to say this, but to say it this way, if you're not here, then you're doing something else. And that means that something else has taken priority. Am I saying that nobody should ever miss a service of Brian Baptist Church? And if you miss a service, if you don't make it here for one, that you have turned away from God? Well, that's not what I mean at all. Paul said also, remember, he said, pray without ceasing. And did he mean that you should never get up off of your knees, that you should never get out of your prayer closet, never eat, never sleep, never drink, never work? No, he was talking about attitude. And I think that that is the way it has to be with prioritizing time for the Lord. Many people are not here for services, especially Wednesday services or Sunday night services, because they have a lifestyle that does not include an attitude of worship. You see, long ago they've made their decision what they're going to do, and now it never even crosses their minds about a Wednesday service. Oh, it does when I preach about it. I mean, even now, I know there's some of you that are rationalizing your absences as if I don't really understand what the problem is. Well, it's not really whether I understand it or not. It's whether you can explain it to God. Does he understand it? And when you get all of that worked out, when you go to him and you get it worked out with him, then you come and tell me, and I promise you, I'll back off of this issue. If you have worldly occupations, then you can expect that your Christian life will be stunted to that extent. Now, here we have disciples who are alive on the most blessed day in the history of the world. This is a Sunday afternoon, and Jesus rose from the dead on that morning. The hope of the entire world to escape the judgment of God hinged upon this event that happened there in Jerusalem. And it was the most blessed day ever, and they missed this. Here they are in the presence of the risen Lord, and they're ignorant of him. Now, I think some of it was supernatural. And I think it was supernatural because Jesus had some things that he needed to teach them, and they were going to change their minds about some things that he had to say, and they were going to learn to be strong disciples that would die for the one that died for him, them. But I think there is also this, this product of unbelief. I mean, why, why should God grant them peace and contentment and joy over what had just happened when they didn't really believe? And I would ask that about you. Why, why should you be thrilled to be a Christian? Why, why should you have joy and contentment in your heart when by your life you don't show that you really believe in God? I don't think that you would call him a liar to his face. Would you do that? I think you have to be careful how you answer that because these disciples that talked with Jesus did this very thing and as you might imagine, it brought a very strong rebuke from him. Now that brings us to the second point of the message and that is the disciples' illumination from Jesus. Now if you look at verses 22 through 24, this is just astonishing 
unbelief. Amazing misunderstanding by these disciples. And what they did was they began to rehearse to Jesus what had happened that day. And they said that there were certain women that came from the tomb and they found that his body wasn't there. And they said that these women claimed that there were angels that, that told them that Jesus was alive. And then they said that Peter and John went to the tomb and they found that just as these women said, there was no body there. But then they added this little postscript at the end of verse number 24. They said, but they saw him not. And do you know what that was? They said, he couldn't be alive because Peter and John did not see him. Now the gals, they said that they saw him, but these guys, they didn't see him. And so we know these women must be a little bit loony. And I'll not comment further on that one. Uh, That's maybe a little bit too pregnant, no pun intended. Uh, I'd be in big trouble to talk about that. But we find that in Matthew 28 that these women weren't so crazy because there it tells us that Jesus met them and they ran and they fell at his feet and they worshipped him. But here are these men standing in the presence of Jesus and they didn't recognize who he was. They were telling him the whole story of what happened, not knowing who he was. Well, at that point, Jesus had heard enough. Notice what he says in verse 27 or what happens in verse 27. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And that was scriptural revelation. How much time could we spend reviewing the material that Jesus taught them in that seven-mile journey? They were walking and they were talking, and perhaps... Maybe it would take about two hours or a little bit longer for them to make that trip from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And during that two hours, Jesus started at Moses. And that means that he started at Genesis because Moses wrote Genesis. And he went through all of the scriptures and to all the prophets, telling them everything that the Old Testament had to say about him. Now, if you didn't know it, folks, this this entire Bible is about Jesus. All of this is about Jesus. You, you may not be able to make all of the connections, and you may not be able to see it on every page, but I, you, you can trust me on this, that somehow everything that is written in here will connect to Jesus. Even those tedious lists of names and numbers, and in First Chronicles, those relate to Jesus. Noah and the ark relates to Jesus. Balaam and his donkey linked to Jesus. Ruth and Boaz linked to Jesus. Samson and Delilah linked to Jesus. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego linked to Jesus. When you get in the book of Zechariah, two olive branches, two golden pipes, and golden oil link to Jesus. You pick a passage, and we can sit down, and given enough time, we can trace that passage to something to do with Christ. Well, Jesus is the living word, and so he doesn't have to take time to figure out all of those connections. So he just zipped through the scriptures, and in those two hours, he told them everything that they ever needed to know about him, but perhaps were afraid to ask. How powerful is the word of God? Well, we could certainly take dozens of messages to deal with that, but let me just shorten it up to one statement that the Apostle Peter made. He said, it is by the word of God that we are born again. 
being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Can you imagine what it must have been like to speak to the author of Scripture and the subject of Scripture and have him tell you about Scripture? I wish we had more time to talk about the power of the word of God, but we need to move along here tonight. But do you know what this did to them when they heard the word of God? They were illumined by the master, and that brought to them a spiritual revival. What effect does the word of God have on people? Well, in verse 28, it says that they reached Emmaus, and then Jesus acted as if he would continue and go a little bit further. But in verse number 29, it says that they were anxious to hear more from him, and so they begged him to come home with them and tell them more about what the scripture said. What is the word of God? Well, it's a cool drink for a thirsty traveler, and it's bread for a hungry man, and and, and the word of God is life for a dying soul. And Jesus illustrated that in verse number 30. And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and break and gave to them. Now, in a few minutes, we're going to break bread. The bread in the supper represents Jesus Christ. He, He is the bread that came down from heaven. He's the manna that came down from heaven. He is the living word of God. Now these disciples were not observing the Lord's Supper in that passage, but here is where Jesus illustrated everything that they had just heard. And wouldn't that have been a clue to his identity? I mean, couldn't this have brought to their minds what the apostles had no doubt told them? And all the conversations that were going on since Jesus had been crucified in Jerusalem... They must have been rehearsing all of those conversations over and over again with each other, thinking over what did he say before he died? What what were the things that he taught us? And they didn't yet have the sense of what all of it meant, and none of them were fully aware of believing in the resurrection. But don't we have a clue to his identity right here? You see, when the word of God gripped them, It caused them to have greater interest in it. There was something supernatural about it. And when the Word of God grips you, you have to have more of it. You know, I can see that in the eyes of those that listen intently to the messages and they make every effort to be sure that they will be here to hear God's Word. And it's not because of me, because I know how severely limited that I am. When I attend the Shepherds Conference, I come home rejoicing for Christ, but but dragging for the comparisons. But I don't stay that way, because I know that preaching the Word of God and standing here is not about me. I'm not the main attraction in Berean Baptist Church. The attraction is the Word of God and Jesus Christ who is revealed in that Word. That's the most important thing. And I don't worry about my abilities I mean, God used Balaam's donkey, and hopefully I'm a step above that at least, and he can use me. So it's the Holy Spirit that does the work. This is not me. But somehow there are people that just don't listen very well to the Holy Spirit. They're not excited as they should be about the Word of God. And so next service, you'll choose not to be here. And we've already covered that, so I don't need to go into it more. But look what it did to these two people. Look what, look what the word of God did to them. And this is the second key verse. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. Their eyes were opened. The word of God opens blinded eyes. John Newton wrote, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. 
That's what the Word of God does. It opens the heart of blinded sinners. Paul wrote this in Ephesians chapter 1, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of His calling, what the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power to usward who believe, according to the working of His mighty power, which He wrought in Christ, when He raised Him from the dead, and set Him at His own right hand in heavenly places. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. And this is what the Word did. Verse number 32. And they said one to another, Did not our heart burn within us while He talked with us by the way, and while He opened to us the Scriptures? Their hearts burned in them when they heard the Word of God. Now that's an expression that's taken right out of the Old Testament scriptures. The great prophet Jeremiah was in turmoil because of the word of God. People mocked him. They made fun of him. And so he was determined that he would not speak the word of God any longer. The word had caused him so much trouble that he decided, I'm not going to talk about the Lord anymore. These are a stiff-necked people. These are people that have hardened their hearts. These are people that will not hear. And so I'll just stop talking to them about the word of God. He tried to do that. But the word of God burned in him. In Jeremiah verse tw- uh, chapter 20, it says, O Lord, Jeremiah says, O Lord, thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I, and hast prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocketh me. For since I spake, I cried out. I cried violence and spoil, because the word of, lo- of the Lord was made a reproach unto me, and a derision daily. I mean, he was pounded because he, he was trying to preach the word of God to people, and they-, and they would not listen to him. They would not awake out of their sinfulness. They would not come back to God. And so he said, I'm not going to make mention of him any longer. Verse number 9, I will not make mention of him, nor speak in his name anymore. But his word was in mine heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. Jeremiah said, the word of God burns in me. My bones are in fire. I just can't hold it in any longer. Now think about that for just a moment. These disciples had just told Jesus, those women are crazy. They couldn't have seen angels. He couldn't be alive. But now after hearing the word of God... They aren't concerned that they might be called crazy too. And so we look at verse number 33. And they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem. So they got up after they heard the word of God and they realized who Jesus was. And with that burning in their souls, they got up and they walked back that seven miles from Emmaus to Jerusalem. And they went and they found the eleven that were gathered together and them that were with them, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and hath appeared to Simon. Now, just for your learning here, as you look at that, it wasn't these two disciples that said those words in verse number 34. Those are words that were spoken by the apostles, and that was after Peter had seen the risen Christ. But you can be sure of this, that when these two men came back to Jerusalem, they were going to confirm that Jesus had risen from the dead, whether or not anybody else said that he did. They were there to say that he is risen. Verse 35, and they told what things were done in the way and how he was known of them in breaking of bread. Now you see, when your eyes are open to the word of God and when the word of God is burning in your bones, what is it that you want to do? You have to go tell somebody. 
You have to get that out. You have to let somebody know about it. And that's where I think that all of us have fallen short. And what is the reason for that? Well, it must be because there's not enough deep contemplation about the Word of God. Something is wrong. Something is wrong. We haven't thought that much about the Word of God because the fire that should be burning in us, because we have this blessed Word of God with us, the fire that should be burning in us is barely smoldering. It even appears like it's about ready to go out. And that has to change. And folks, I'll tell you, there's not a better time for that to change than tonight. There's not a better time than when we come to the Lord's table. There's not a better time like the present. What do you want to happen in your life? Do you want the fire of God to be rekindled in you? Do you want to feel that fire of God burning in your soul again so you can't help but to get it out? Well, coming to the Lord's table is a good place to take care of that. We come here with deep regret for the failures that we've, that we've had. I mean, we've had this unbelief in our minds. We've had our failed expectations. We've, we've had our worldly occupations and everything else that's going on in our mind. And here we are at the Lord's table tonight to be reminded of what Christ did for us. How much he suffered for us. How he gave his life for us. How he gave all for us in order that we might die, not die in our sins and go to hell. We need the burning in our souls once again. We need to have a little talk with Jesus and let him remind us of what the scriptures have to say about him. And you can trust me on this, that the illumination that you'll get from the word of God, when you really get it down in your soul, it will do wonders for your zeal. Now, what I'd like to ask you to do tonight, if you would, I'd like you to bow your heads for just a moment. And as our musicians come and they're going to play uh, some music here softly for us tonight, I want you to think about this. I want you to pray for our church. we, We have a special time of prayer that's planned for about 10 days from now. But we need prayer now. We can start right now praying that God will change our hearts. Now, if you want us to have an Emmaus Road experience, if you want this church to be really on fire for the Lord and see great things done by God's Holy Spirit among us, would you take some time to pray? And I'm going to ask you to do something else. I don't often do this because I don't play on people's emotions. Very rarely do I do this, but who would would dare step out and just come to the front of the church tonight and just kneel down and begin to ask God to change our church, to change our hearts, to change our lives and make us so that we'll want to be true witnesses for him. That we take the spirit of what happened here and at, on the road to Emmaus and may that be the same kind of a, of a revelation that would transform our lives tonight. I ask you to come tonight while Melissa plays for us. I ask you to come tonight. Just come and kneel down in the front here and just begin to pray for our church. Would you do that? Or is there somebody here that you'd say, this is what I want to do. I, I want to pray for my church and I want God to have his will and I'm in my life, I want him to really wake us up to this. Would you come? Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, 
Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.